Hello and welcome back to Talk Gnosis, the web's premier web show and podcast about Gnosticism, the esoteric, mysticism, mystical religion, magic, religious history, biblical studies, pop culture, whatever else we feel like talking about that day. Uh, I'm Deacon John. I'm uh, joined by my co-host, uh, Bishop Laney Peterson. Hi, Bishop. Hello. Good to see you. And uh, I always say that we're thrilled to have a special guest, uh, but tonight, today, I am <laughs> thrilled to have a special guest, uh, all-time <laughs> reigning champion on Talk Gnosis. I believe the fourth time he's been on with very varied things to talk about. Previously, it was science fiction, and then uh, the historical Jesus, and the Mandians. So, fourth time All Star, Doctor James McGrath. Hi. Is is that a record? I didn't even know. So, <laughs> so, we'll make up a medal for him sometime. Yeah, we'll send you a trophy. Funny hat. It's a show yeah. about. It, it is a show about occultism. So yeah. we have to work on a funny hat, maybe. Okay. Uh, I'm not as much of a hat wearer, but do you have a T-shirt? You know, I'll I'll happily sport the T-shirt and look at a T-shirt. Actually, we do. So yes. Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just tell me where to buy one, or you know, feel free if it's. You know, I, I will happily surrender it if somebody else, you know, exceeds me. If that's the way it works, just let me know. Um, well, you well, can mail the T-shirt. You know. The traveling pants. This could be a, uh, you know, a brother and sisterhood of the traveling T-shirt, depending on how often they're on the show. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'll yeah have a numbered pin or something that can go and be like, you know, reading champ or something, and I'll I'll just hand that on to somebody else. They can pin it to their T-shirt. You know. Uh, you should have t-shirts with a special place that have like where you can put the badge that shows how many times you've been on. There we go. There we go. <laughs> there. Okay. Pretty good. But, well, we'll yeah, get I, that sent to you. Yeah, I'm. It, we we've we haven't run out of new topics to talk about, which is interesting. I feel like we could say more about any of the topics we've talked about so far, but. Uh, we've got something that's at least a little bit new, although it intersects with some of the other ones today. Precisely, yes, that's it exactly. And of course, every time we've had you on, I mean, that is sort of the thing is we're actually sort of a longer podcast and some, you know, that there are some great, actually biblical studies podcasts are 20 minutes, half an hour. We go for 45 minutes an hour and it's never enough time. So, um, uh, uh, and, and yes, there's some interesting intersections and I suspect uh, God willing and James willing, this will not be the last time that you're on. Uh, but we'll talk about that at the very end of the show. So uh, today's topic is about a presentation that you did for the Enoch seminar. Uh, the name of your presentation, I believe, was Shared Origins of Monotheism, Evil, and Gnosticism. So as soon as I saw you posting about this online, I'm like, well, that's certainly up our alley. And that's certainly a topic that uh, both us and our fans and anybody who is cool would be interested in. So we'll jump right into it. And, and I know that, again, this is something that's pretty tough to sum up in two or three minutes. Uh, but uh, for those who don't know or haven't seen the Talk Noses episode with you about the Mandeans, who are the Mandeans? It's the elevator speech version. The Mandeans, in a nutshell, are the last surviving Gnostic group that made it from ancient times down to the present day with as far as we can tell, an uninterrupted tradition. So you know better than most people that I speak to that uh, there are all sorts of uh, Gnostic expressions of religiosity today. Uh, so I'm not um, in any way discounting those, but this is an ancient tradition, right? That has made it down to the present day. And so preserve something from the ancient world uh, 
via its, its lived practice and its oral tradition, as well as its uh, scriptures, which many of us have come to and you know been excited by ancient texts and had them invigorate our uh, our own personal religion as well as our scholarship and other things. Uh, yeah, that wasn't as short as I intended it to be, but uh, there you go. <laughs> that, that's a pretty that's a pretty awesome way to sum up uh, an entire faith. And, and as we talked about, not only is that an hour episode, that's a three hour episode every week for the rest of our lives. So <laughs> yeah, I, I immediately, as soon as I started the standard kind of brief thing, I said, I was like, yeah, no, this this sounds like I'm discounting modern expressions of Gnosticism, maybe as not having the same street cred or something or something like that, which was not my intention at all, uh, by any means. Uh, it was just talking about that this is this is an ancient religion that has uh, oh so many interesting features and so many aspects to it that uh, it's fascinating to dig into. Yes. No, you, you, I'm sure I'm speaking for Bishop Lanier or any other modern Gnostic who's not a Mandian out there watching. We know exactly what you meant, and uh, no offense taken. So, um, I've been saying the same thing for years. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think uh, what's a nice way to put this, and of course, if anybody disagrees with me, I don't want to paint them as uh, uh, wrong. But, you know, I, I think anybody who, who doesn't accept modern Gnosticism as modern, uh, even if there are some lineages or it goes back to certain places, uh, th th might be playing with fire there. But that's a different topic. We'll do a whole show on that. Uh, yeah, get it on the schedule. Yes, I'll pop it on the schedule. Uh, okay, so we've established who the Mandians are. Uh, now we're going to talk about looking at them for clues with the origins of Gnosticism. So, James, you talked about them being ancient, but it's my understanding that the, the scriptures and writings that we have from them, the oldest that they are, seem to be second or third century. So why would we look at them for clues on the origins of Gnosticism, which is thought to be, you know, older? Yes, and really the, the background to this is that that really puzzling historical question of when does Gnosticism first emerge and what leads to it emerging in the first instance, which as far as historical origins go is, is an interesting puzzle and uh, quite a challenging and sometimes frustrating one for those who are trying to dig into and answer historical questions. Uh, it doesn't necessarily impact the lived practice, right? That's true of a lot of traditions. They can be quite fine without knowing exactly when and where somebody first had this idea and things like that. But for somebody who does historical types of scholarship, the question of well, where does this come from is often an interesting one at the very least and sometimes can, can help us understand a tradition better when we understand what, what matrix it formed in and things like that. And so uh, it's, a, it's a great question as well about how these later texts relate to earlier tradition, earlier things like that. Uh, one of my research projects at the moment that I'm uh, really just getting started on that this may or may not connect with very directly, but at least connect with indirectly, is about the historical figure of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist figures very prominently in uh, the Mandaean tradition, and baptism is their primary ritual, it's central to their religion, and do they have a historical connection with John the Baptist? If so, then the fact that their texts may have, some of their earliest texts may have been put into something like the form in which we come to know them at a later time, doesn't mean that the tradition is not older. And those are the kinds of things that historians often struggle to deal with 
but which we need to if we're going to address, even in a hypothetical way, some of these kinds of questions. Because whenever and wherever one places and situates the origins of Gnosticism, it's before somebody writes about it. And exactly how long before, we don't know, but we're going to have to do some deductive work. And it's really just a question of how long the gap might be. Yes. So uh, I, I didn't see your presentation. Uh, I wasn't at the Enoch seminar. Enoch seminar, if you're watching, please send me that invite. But in, in <laughs> your presentation, uh, you spoke about or you write about the emergence of monotheism and Judaism, right? Which, which you actually connect to Gnosticism, but we'll get to that in a little bit. But the emergence of monotheism and Judaism, I think a lot of uh, listeners, a lot of watchers might be asking themselves right now, Judaism, wasn't it always monotheistic? Short answer, no. Uh, although, if one is talking about Judaism using that label, then that label often is associated with uh, a particular offshoot of the traditions of and phenomenon that emerges out of, but is also shaping in very specific ways of the traditions of ancient Israel that relate to scriptures, uh, Torah, uh, heritage in particular place, temple in Jerusalem, things like that, and things that happen in the era of the Babylonian exile and beyond that. And so uh, there is a sense in which Judaism as a phenomenon might be monotheistic in some sense of that term from its beginnings. But really what I'm looking at in this paper is pre-exilic Israelite religion and how Judaism and Gnosticism might emerge as sort of trends reacting to one another out of that same shared heritage. Mm. So Gnosticism and Mandianism, they're often thought as uh, common era. Uh, in my notes, I have second and third century, but we could probably even say second, third, fourth century. Uh, how could their origins be connected to this, this much earlier development with the Hebrew scriptures, the emergence of monotheistic de developments? And what does this all have to do with the problem of evil? Like, sort of, like for some context, like the Babylonian exile is, is that 500 before the common era? Um, that's a, that puts it about right. Yeah, that's yeah. So this this is much earlier than the time frame we often think of for Gnosticism. You know, right. for those who are who aren't familiar with these dates. So so how how are these events connected, and, and what does this all have to do with with people trying to figure out why there's evil in the world? Right. Well, the short answer, as far as the connection with evil is concerned, uh, the Enoch seminar focus was on the problem of evil. Mm. I think there is a direct connection with this, but that's why that was highlighted in the. Uh, the title of the paper and part of the exploration. But I think there is a direct connection, which I'll get back to in a moment. But let me first make clear that I'm not suggesting that the Nag Hammadi scriptures actually date centuries and centuries earlier than has been thought or something like that, right? So that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that Gnosticism, even in the form that we know it, either in Mandaean scriptures or in texts that were found in Egypt or from anywhere else, is precisely the religion of some earlier time period. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that there's a direct link, right? Just as we can say that Christianity emerges out of first century Judaism and yet 
if we trace that trajectory and are dependent only on texts that emerge from that uh, heritage uh, of Christianity as we come to know it, then there are things about its Jewish matrix that we might not think about or might not be aware of. So I'm talking about what is it that gives the impetus to this? And really what I'm focused on is this really puzzling question about a key characteristic of Gnostic sources. And I know there's some people who have problems with that term. That's one of the things that I heard, even though I apologize for using it at the Enoch seminar, but uh, I think it actually works for reasons that I'm happy to explain. But uh, for anyone who takes offense, please keep listening and uh, let me, you know, just take it a shorthand for something else if, if you prefer. But really the, the question is, where does this characteristic that we find in the Nag Hammadi texts and that we find in the Mandayan texts come from, where not just some inferior or malevolent creator is thought to be behind the material world and that's why there is evil and there is suffering. And as I usually throw in when talking about this with students, there are things like organic chemistry exams pharmacy <laughs> students and things like that. Um, anything that you think is horrible, right, can be blamed on this, this creator who makes a world that has these things. That in itself is, I think, a solution to the problem of evil, right? And whether you find it persuasive or not is another question, but it is an attempt to take seriously that the world seems really messed up and yet there are glimmers of light and to find a, a way of thinking of the, the cosmos as a whole and existence as a whole that does justice to that. These texts though do something very specific that I think we should find puzzling. And if listeners who know these texts haven't found it puzzling, I hope I will introduce them to the puzzle and then maybe also offer a possible solution to the puzzle. Who and where you know, would, would find it to make sense to find it meaningful to identify specifically the God of Genesis, the God of the Jewish scriptures as that creator, right, of this world, right? So if you are Jewish, if you are part of this Israelite heritage, it would seem like, you know, if you have these scriptures and they're authoritative to you, then you might not want to denigrate the deity who is lifted up as the God, right, above all other gods and things like that, right? If you're not Jewish, if you're not connected with that Israelite tradition, why bother, right? Why focus on that particular that particular uh, deity, that particular divine concept, that those particular names and things like that? And so that's what I think is a puzzle that is crucial, and I think is is central to making sense of Gnostic origins in general, right? The the question of where does it come from in Egypt? Where does it come from in other places? Where does it come from in the Mandaean tradition? Can each be asked separately? But this is something that's found all across that literature right from Egypt all the way to Mesopotamia. And so I think it's there and has something to do with its origins, something to do with its core. And it's a puzzle. And in a nutshell, hopefully being more succinct than I was with my, in a nutshell about the Mandaeans, in a nutshell, the Israelite tradition was not always monotheistic. Mm -hmm. And it's in the exilic, post-exilic period, it's with the the compilation of what's known as the Torah, the Pentateuch, right, the Jewish scriptures, that you get the promulgation of monotheism as the way to worship. Right? It has some earlier roots than that, but that's when it really starts to be centralized. It has institutional support in a new way. 
and there's an attempt to promote it, and in some cases to impose it. And the broader Israelite tradition that had divine figures like Asherah and Anat and Baal and all these other figures doesn't just disappear. Right? So we have evidence from, particularly from Elephantine in Egypt, where there was a temple of a Jewish colony there. Right, So there was a Jewish expatriate community there that worshipped their, their god, Yah, as well as, you know, Anat Yah, who is mentioned alongside, you know, that male deity. And it's fascinating. And in essence, what I'm arguing is that that doesn't just disappear when that temple in Elephantine gets destroyed. Right. And scholars have been aware that elements of that polytheism, elements of the Israelite goddess come through in later literature, uh, that they're there not just in Gnosticism, maybe in you know, the figure of Sophia, but also in uh, Philo of Alexandria, right, with his, uh, some of his thought and his thinking in arguably in Christianity. And the argument I made in my paper is that it's elements of that tradition that didn't just say, oh, sure, we're going to get rid of all the other deities now. We're going to identify the supreme god and Yahweh, you know, El and Yahweh are going to be, you know, view them as one and fine, sure, why not? We'll just uh, abolish everything we thought and we'll, yeah. Some people apparently were fine with that, but not everyone was. And somebody kept those traditions alive somewhere because they continue to have an influence. And my argument is that, and I realize once again, I failed to be succinct, but my <laughs> argument is that representatives of that tradition, right? People are preserving it in an area where monotheism starts to be promoted, the Torah starts to be promoted, are precisely the ones who might take that creator God, who's now being promoted as the only true God and the supreme God, and make fun of him. Right. And make, fun of, make fun of him in the specific ways that we find in some of the Nag Hammadi texts, right? Where like, you know, you blind God, you think you're the only God here, you know, you, are, you, are you that ignorant and all these kinds of things. You know, they're, they're really mocking the promoters of that identification, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that when we, once we propose it, suddenly this thing that's historically one of the more puzzling features of the Gnostic tradition actually makes a lot of sense and seems like something natural for a group of that sort to propose, right? And so I don't think that becomes Gnosticism precisely as we get it from the Greco-Roman era, right? There's drawing on uh, Greek philosophy, there's other things, but I think that that Israelite tradition, uh, that Israelite tradition of protest against the imposition of monotheism contributes something to what becomes Gnosticism. And that's my argument in a nutshell. Right. So you can make uh, the you can make the the we're not saying the Gnosticism is is twenty five hundred years old or just sprung out immediately from these conflicts between the the monotheists and the sort of uh, traditional religionists of uh, of, of Hebrew uh, religion. But there it it resolves some of those puzzles you were talking about when you have this through line and this connection. The the puzzle of why uh, you would have these 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 texts that in many ways focus around uh, the the deity that's found in the Hebrew scriptures, which, as you pointed out, if you weren't Jewish or not connected to Judaism or the Hebrew Israelite traditions in some ways, why would you be writing about them? 
Um, and uh, and if you are part of those traditions, why are you making fun of him? So it, it seems like a very clear, logical, uh, and elegant solution to, to some of these puzzles. Um, but before we move on, uh, uh, Bishop, do you, do you have anything to, to add and ask? Because I'll keep barreling through our question sheet, so I better well, take a what, moment. What, what fascinates me, I guess, here is, is that what, what I see, I read your paper, which was uh, really eye-opening. Um, but I, one of the things that, that it, it's coming up is like there's this ongoing battle between, uh, you can think about battles between deities, but there's like a battle between the religionists who have held to their beliefs. You know, there may be a dominant belief that becomes part of the narrative, but there are still people who have, have their own beliefs and are still partisan to their own position. And, these traditions still are, have, there's even an echo in the dominant narrative. Um, a while back, I was reading something about the Norse mythologies where you have the Asir and the Vanir, but their, their enemies are the giants. Hmm. And one of the uh, explanations for that was that the giants represent a, uh, a pre-Norse tradition, an even older indigenous tradition, and there was a twilight of these gods and that got expressed in the in the mythology. Even people like uh, Tiwazatir, he, he he became eclipsed by Odin, and that made that into the Norse mythology. So, of course, we have our own set of myths in in this tradition, and I'm almost hearing that happening here. Um, you know, that that that's what struck me was that you've got these clashes, but the people who the indigenous people or the people who maybe lost the battle. Their voices are still there, and you, you get remnants in these conflicts with the myths. That's what I started thinking about. Yes, thank you. That's 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 very helpful. And it might be that as I move on to explore this, well, I might have to put together a collaborative project that brings in people who know Norse traditions better than I. Well, <laughs> not better than I do. Knows Norse traditions. Period. <laughs> It's, uh, I'm as vaguely familiar with them as anyone, but not uh, not intimately. But certainly in in the uh, you know uh, Southern Indo-European tradition, you know if you go to um, South Asia and Persia, you know that sort of area, you find that there is an inversion of you know which figures and which terms are used for essentially, you know, deities, angels, beings of that sort, positive beings, and which ones are viewed for as uh, negative ones. And so clearly there too, we see essentially a reaction against something. It's, it's, yeah. it's hard, you know, we'd have, to, we'd have to do a lot more historical work to say, okay, so who's, who's starting this and who's reacting against whom and how does this all play out? And rather than get into that, it's just, there, there is a, a phenomenon of, religious inversion, right, and reaction. And there, there's definitely something that would be worth doing a whole conference on maybe, or uh, an edited Bible, something so. like that. And I think it's fascinating. And, and, and you even have, you know, we know, we, we talk, we hear about uh, in the scriptures, uh, Nephilim, you know, the, the angels coming down and meeting with the daughters of men, and you have giants, okay? Who gets called a giant? Who gets called God? Right. <laughs> and, you know, um, and I actually was going to go a little further, and forgive me, Deacon, into, into the question. Oh, please. But when, you know, one of the questions has to do with Yaldabaoth being described as a serpent with a lion's face, I, I sometimes, I mean, just the thought came to mind, okay, you've got the old serpent, you know, slithering around the, uh, the Garden of Eden, uh, but then you've got this lion's face. I don't know if 
the Lion of Judah would be that that would be something that would put together to mock um, some of the later beliefs to say, you know, okay, we're gonna we're gonna fuse a couple of these symbols together and and mock him as he sits on his throne. But that's one of the things that came to mind when I was reading this. I don't know if you have any insight, but you know a lot more than I do, uh, Dr. McGrath, but I'd be interested in hearing about that. Yes, well, how they how they come up with the figure is is hard to say. Uh, that's that's a wonderful suggestion, right? That maybe there's the you know taking the the serpent, which has started to be denigrated, along with all uh, various other figures that were positive in um, pre-exilic Israelite tradition, and you know sticking the Lion of Judah's face on there and you know saying ha ha, you know look what we you know there's there's a sense in which there's there's definitely an element of satire in this polemic, right? Oh and yeah. One of the things that's yeah. you know just amazing about Mandayan uh, texts is just the way they they do things with wordplay and you know there's just there's so much satire and so much humor in there. Um, if you're if if you're Jewish or Christian, you have to have a thick skin <laughs> reading them. <laughs> there's a lot of polemic yeah. that you know, might be coming in your direction, but you know if you can appreciate humor, you know, and wordplay when it's clever, even if it's uh, aimed at you, then there's there's just so much in there that's rich, but. Yeah, one 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 place where I've seen you know some interesting things that come out of this. There's there's clearly a serpent figure in you know who sometimes plays a positive role in you know, Gnostic literature, and the serpent figure plays a negative role in Jewish scripture. And you know, among those, it's not just the serpent in the garden, but also uh, this figure that's sometimes called Nehushtan, right? This uh, sort of serpent wrapped around a pole that's lifted up and is a uh, you know, some sort of symbol or deity or whatever. It's all we have is polemic against it in the Hebrew Bible, and so we don't know the details. But one thing that's interesting is uh, Margaret Barker, in one of her books, mentions uh, a missionary to China, who, uh, or the son, the, uh, the son of missionaries to China, who said that they came across a community that seemed to have some connection with pre-exilic Israelite religion, like there were, you know, there, these are people who, and a you know, diaspora that had spread at least as far as Mesopotamia. Uh, we know that other traditions like Manichaeism continued to spread and made it to China and flourish there until you know right down to the present day. And so there's nothing impossible about you know this at all, right? But they still held up essentially a serpent on a pole as a symbol of the divine presence. And I'm like, wow, you know, that's just you know amazing. And of course, one of the Mandayan symbols that Christians often think resembles one of their symbols is this sort of cross beam that gets lifted up, right? It gets sort of planted in the, the water during baptism, things like that, and has a, has a banner draped on it in ways that seem reminiscent of like Good Friday at church and things like that, you know, if you're coming from the Christian tradition. But could that have come from the idea of, you know, the serpent on the pole symbol that, you know, is clearly a, a widespread ancient religious symbol because, of course, you also get in the Greek tradition and uh, become part of medical symbolism, you know, by that route and other things. So there's, there, there's something there that is going to take not just a lot more digging, but I think a lot more collaborative effort because I think one reason why this proposal that I made has not been made in this form before, even though a lot of the pieces seem to be there when you start looking across the wider scholarship, is that the same people don't work on ancient Israel and on Gnosticism right. and on, you know, it's, these are 
compartments that are separated by time and by geography and by linguistic expertise. And you really do have to start building some interdisciplinary bridges in order to start putting some of these pieces together. Yes. Can well, I ask if there is, oh, sorry. Yeah, I go ahead. If there's, if there's a political component to this as well in the term, in terms of, okay, when you start suggesting that uh, Israelite religion was not always monotheistic, that can make some people's heads explode. Um, is there a political aspect to this too, do you think? Uh, certainly, there's there's a there's there's some controversy mm -hmm. in some circles about that. I think mostly from Christian fundamentalists more than anything else. Uh, okay. If you go if you go to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem and yeah. walk around, there are all these artifacts that reflect pre-exilic Israelite religion, and the the official line seems to be, "Yeah, looks like we weren't always monotheists," and there's a sense in which even reading the Hebrew Bible, even reading the Jewish scriptures, that's, you, you, if you're reading it, you should be under no illusion that this tradition was always monotheistic. The only real question is, was there an earlier monotheism and should somebody, you know, should the people in general have known better and those kinds of things, right? Which are really questions of, you know, a, a sort of a particular theological perspective, but that the majority of Israelites throughout most of their history prior to the exile were not monotheists, were not uh, what we might call monolatrists, worshiping in one place and all these kinds of things, that they had sacred stones, sacred trees, multiple deities, is something that really the Hebrew Bible and the archeology span converge on. And so in, in the mainstream of Judaism, as well as I think in a lot of you know, Christianity and certainly among scholars, this is not, this is not controversial at all. Yeah, we, we actually, uh, we've done a few shows on Margaret Parker's work, and I, I remember making an observation or joke, I'm just going to quote myself because I'm so in love with myself, but, you know, I, I've heard it, I've heard it summed up basically that in, in archaeology, like in, in Israel, Palestine, that you, you, you can't dig a hole without finding an Asherah, that is a, a small clay depiction of the goddess that was probably used in the household for ritual. There's just literally, perhaps even thousands would be an underestimate, but the way that they're presented, like as you were saying, uh, in some museums and with some scholars, it's, uh, oh, it's uh, a doll, or it was uh, invading pagans, or uh, Canaanites, or just anything else, but sort of looking at it as, as a function of Israelite religion and its relation to Asherah. Um, there's, uh, we already skipped ahead to the serpent with a lion's face. So why don't we talk about that just for, for a few more moments? Because I had the question on here, which I have written as Yalda Bayoff is described as a serpent with a lion's face. But like, what might this have to do with early Israelite worship? Like, is it, uh, is there some sort of snake deity? We have the snake on the pole. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's the one I'm thinking of in, in that connection. Right. Yeah. And yeah, exactly how, specific deities were uh, conceived and when we're dealing with essentially the same the same goddess, for instance, or the same god, but uh, by different names because things like Baal, you know, it's a title really, master, right? Lord, rather than a name per se. And so when are we dealing with the same deity in different local expressions? When are we dealing with what were thought of as different figures with different stories is sometimes hard to piece together. But yeah, the, the serpent is just one of them, right? And 
Um, I actually put together a list of some of the other names that emerge in Mandaean literature that I think are really part of this argument that I'm trying to make because the, the Nagamati texts obscure some of this because of the fact that they're written in Greek, you know, and in Coptic, you know, sometimes yeah. with the evidence of translation from Greek. Whereas the Mandaean texts are in a dialect of Aramaic, right? And so it's coming through the root of Semitic language spoken and at least known by, you know, educated Israelites and things like that. And so I think there's a lot more preservation of names and linguistic elements there. Uh, yeah. let, me, let me just say, before I go through that list, that you mentioned another thing that I think has kept this from being seen as significant in the way that I'm proposing, uh, as far as the origins of Gnosticism and things like that. And you, you say it yourself, this, these elements have been recognized as there in the archeological record and in the scriptures, but were viewed as borrowings from neighbors, right? This yeah. pagan or Canaanite tradition, things like that. And really it's, it's now that we're seeing Israelite religion as itself an expression of Canaanite religion that then you can say, okay, so if this is actually the Israelite heritage and it preserves, it's preserved into the post-exilic era, as they sometimes call it, the, you know, it's there in literature of the second temple period and maybe even beyond, it's there in Jewish mysticism, even later times, it's having this ongoing influence, then, then that's become something much more significant and interesting, or at least it becomes interesting and can be understood and framed in different ways than if you're viewing it as just these influences that you you want to downplay and people should have been escaping from supposedly and that sort of thing, right? right. Yeah, so uh, I think that in the Mandaean text, we actually have light world figures. So, you know, um, you know aeons, you know, in the, you know, the, the, the Greek and Coptic tradition, uh, emanations from, you know, the supreme divine source that have names that I think reflect pre-exilic Israelite tradition, right? So uh, after the first great light, right, the, the first great life rather, which is the, the divine wellspring, right, the, the ultimate source, the one, uh, you get, you know, the second figure is um, Yashamin, which comes from Yah Shamin, right? Yah mm -hmm. of heaven, right? And you also get, you know, the, the name, you know, Baal of heaven is much more widely known, right? But you get Yah spoken of in the same way. Um, then you get Yukabar, Yah the Great, right? Um, Yusmir, right? Seems to be another one from Yah. Um, Yuzatak. And then Yoruba, right? Which seems to be from Yah Raba, right? Yah, another way of saying Yah the Great, uh, is the figure that is you know, essentially responsible for bringing the world into existence. And that's you know, essentially the demiurge. And it's also known as Adonai, right? Um, it's identified with the sun, right? Shamish. And of course, even the one God of Israel in synagogues where apparently the Torah is being promoted and is caught on, you get these zodiacal uh, mosaics and things like that, you know, places like Dora Europos and things like that, where God is depicted in the middle of it as the sun and things like that. And mm -hmm. then, you know, so Yorba or Adonai is, you know, closely connected with Ruhad Kudsha, right? Which is, you know, Holy Spirit like literally, right? Although whether holy is the right way of translating the word when this is not a positive figure is another question, right? Uh, we have, 
Yeah, and and she's identified with Venus, right? And of course, the term for Venus in this language is Spira, right? From which you get Ishtar, Astarte, right? So that terminology comes through because it's in a Semitic linguistic environment. And then you have um, Abatur, right? Which is an, a fascinating name that I won't even get into because it's, it's a bit of a puzzle in its own right. But uh, is also known by a secret name, Torel, right? Which seems to mean bull L. And that's one of the terms that's used in you get that in Canaanite literature, right? From, right from you know from from the relevant era. Uh, you have Tahil, which seems to be you know Ta, the Egyptian deity, plus El, uh, who's also referred to as Gabriel, which is a more familiar name from the Israelite tradition. But you know Ta and Il are El are identified in Canaan, you know, during the era of Egyptian rule there, right? And so again, this seems to be something that goes way way back in linguistically, right? Even if the, the, the deity or the divine figure as depicted in the Mandaean literature doesn't necessarily have all the attributes that you would have found in pre-exilic Canaan or something like that. And then also I want to mention Anna Hay, right? Who's, uh, you know, Hay's is life. And so Anna plus, you know, sort of hyphen Hay, right? Associated with a male figure or Anna life maybe is just, you know, her title here. But that, you know, Anna, we know that name from Elephantine, we know it from Uhurit, we know it from, and so these names come through in the Mandayan tradition. And what are they doing there, right? I think yeah. the answer is they are reflective of something that contributes to the emergence of Mandaism. And I think not just Mandaism, but Gnosticism as a whole. But I think when we bring the Mandayan tradition into the picture and ask about Gnostic origins, they contribute something because of that unique uh, linguistic um, heritage that they have. Yes, exactly. And, and to clarify, and then for people out there, again, these we're talking a separation of hundreds, perhaps even, you know, millennia between uh, these these names showing up in very early Canaanite sources, and then we find them in a very different context in the Mandaean uh, literature. You know, hundreds, millennia, a year later. So uh, very indicative of uh, of an interesting connection, as you say. Uh, the, revealing uh, the origins of these movements. Now, your presentation was relatively brief, but what you're suggesting could be a big paradigm shift, in my opinion. Like, are you going to do more work on this theory? Do you see it catching on of other scholars? Yeah, so the, the reaction was uh, as favorable, maybe more favorable than I dared to hope. Uh, so there were definitely some who thought, yeah, there's something here that seems persuasive on first, you know, first hearing, uh, people who read the paper, you know, as respondents who thought, yeah, there's, there's, there's potential here for a paradigm shift and something very important. There were also people who did not respond as favorably or as positively, and there was no surprise in that either, right? That's true of any, any scholarly proposal. But given that, you know, I start out in, you know, New Testament, early Christianity, branch off into Mandaism, and now I'm trying to tackle Gnostic origins. Uh, if I come up with any insight, however meager, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty content. Uh, if I have something that actually seems plausible to some people with much greater expertise in some of this literature than I have, then, uh, you know, even better. But I think at the very least, there is, there is something here that's worth exploring further, worth digging into further. And I suspect that I will be doing some of that 
probably in, a, in some direct way. I mean, I'm going to publish a version of this paper. You know, that's you know the first step, and then see what kind of reaction it gets, and then whether it's something that I work on or something that uh, I and others work on, or something which others take take it up and <laughs> work on it and do do all the really interesting stuff with it once I've floated it. That I think remains to be seen, but I think it may connect with the John the Baptist project that I will be working on. And that is actually uh, the next big project once I finish some of the other, <laughs> I was gonna say some of the other smaller projects, some of the other equally big projects that I've already agreed to uh, pursue in the uh, shorter term. Because on the one hand, there's a connection between John the Baptist and the Mandaean tradition, and whether that's that reflects something to do with their origins is itself an interesting question. But if we ask where did this tradition of you know pre-exilic Israelite you know resistance to monotheism where did this persist where did it exist where could you find it I think it probably persisted the longest in those geographical regions that were the furthest extent of the Israelite diaspora right yeah. and so furthest from the direct influence of you know Jerusalem and you know, religious authorities there and teaching that's being promulgated from there and things like that. And one of the things I did in the, the presentation was to, and as I was working on it, was to map, you know, where do we get key points, you know, key locations for Gnosticism in ancient times? And where do we get the Israelite diaspora, right? Mm -hmm. And you trace it along and you end up in places like Egypt. Hey, look what we've got there. We've got this overlap. And Mesopotamia, hey, look what we've got there. We've got this overlap. And you know, then some in Rome and some in you know, Samaria and Transjordan and things like that. And I think that John the Baptist, having been active in places like Samaria and Transjordan, may have actually intersected with some of these ideas. And mm. so he may not have been um, something that we might call a Gnostic, but he may have been heard by people who you know, perceived him in a certain way. And he may have provided something that helped the traditions that I'm perceiving as in a glass darkly uh, through this literature in earlier times, uh, may have actually helped spark that becoming what we know of as Gnosticism, as people took his, his baptism and his uh, selectivity when it came to forgiveness via the, the means provided in the Torah and combine that with some things that were part of their own heritage and heard him in particular ways and put those pieces together. And so uh, whether as a major part or as a, as a side note in that project, I will, I will turn my attention to that question. Yeah, well, we can't wait for that, that's for sure. And uh, you, you will continue to wear your championship crown when you uh, keep putting out fascinating uh, research like this. Uh, you mentioned Margaret Barker earlier. Uh, what I need to do is, I, I'm a big fan of her work. Uh, I need to get our producer a siren that whenever her name is mentioned, he can just ring. Uh, but her work, it's not always big or respected in sort of mainline academic circles. Do you think there's some value in her work and do you see any connections with between it and your own thesis in this paper? Uh, so, yeah, if we talk about academics being respected, I think that's maybe the, yeah, there's a, there's a broader uh, question there, I think. And on the one hand, I've, I've never had the impression that Margaret Barker is not um, respected generally, but I know there are certainly some people who are, can be quite dismissive. Uh, 
of uh, scholars if they either disagree with them or just think that you know, their, their approach is not one that they, they accept or embrace. And it's important to distinguish, you know, for me personally as an academic, it's important to distinguish between agreeing with someone, you know, finding their conclusions persuasive and finding their attempts to find alternative ways of understanding texts, phenomena, ideas, uh, finding it valuable, finding it important, right? And even before I revisited some of the things that I'd read earlier and was like, wow, that's really interesting, but I'm not sure I'm persuaded, you know, in Margaret Barker's work, uh, you know, found, found her suggestions, you know, incredibly creative just in how mm -hmm. she saw connections between ancient Israelite tradition and, you know, Philo of Alexandria and Christianity and things like that. And, you know, she's not the only one who's seen some continuities. And I think, you know, among the missing pieces that, you know, were not, you know, that maybe add to what she proposed and give us this possibility of turning this into an explanation for Gnostic origins is our, first of all, the Mendian literature. And then also seeing these things as I think Barker, you know, is, you know, was trying to do as part of the mainstream of ancient Israelite religion, rather than as this foreign influence, right? That's always being sort of fought back and you know by the the valiant defenders of of the truth or something along those lines, as as orthodoxy would would have it, right? Awesome. So, I mean, Margaret Barker's scholarship is incredibly creative and should be you know should be appreciated. Whether whether you're persuaded by her or not, you know, that's that's no excuse for for denigration of. You know, an academic who's doing creative and well-informed research. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I completely concur. Uh, so unfortunately, we are starting to get to to wrap up time. Uh, I mean, again, a whole show. Uh, I would love to talk to you about the terms Gnostic and Gnosticism because obviously I like using them, but that's that's yeah. for another day. Uh, but James, uh, we'd love to have you back on to talk about it when it comes out. But could you give us a little teaser or tell us about your upcoming book, What Jesus Learned from Women? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I look forward to the, 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 uh, the future conversations, whether about this and also, yeah, it, the one thing I will say, because we started with the Mandaeans, is that uh, their key figure that the, the religious tradition gets that particular one of many names from, you know, Manda, the hay, right, Nol is usually translated as knowledge of life, right? So Manda is knowledge, right? According to that linguistic analysis, that which means that the Mandaeans are literally Gnostics, literally. Right? And so, at least in connection with that tradition, I feel comfortable using it, right? Whatever else anybody might want to say about the broader tradition. Uh, when it comes to what Jesus learned from women, so that book is basically done. Although I keep, you know, keep uh, tinkering and doing things, but I'm basically at the stage of having a complete draft. Uh, it's gone out for some feedback. And it really is a continuation of a number of things that I've been interested in uh, that have already been mentioned. Uh, the historical Jesus, right, as an interest of mine, which we talked about on, in a previous episode. Uh, John the Baptist and uh, the, the whole idea that Jesus had a teacher, right? Maybe had more than one, right? It learned from uh, people, learned things, right? And so in the book, you know, I don't get into the kind of detail that we've been talking about here because I'm not sure it directly influences him. But I think that the Galilee, you know, that whole region in the north there, right, is a place where Judaism, as in this thing connected with Judah, 
and a broader Israelite tradition that isn't exactly the same as what you get emerging out of and centered in Jerusalem uh, exists. And so, you know, where does he get that? You know, from you know mother and grandmother and you know people like that. And so, looking at some of those formative influences is part of it, and connects with some of the things I know you you're interested in. And so, I want to mention that. Uh, but the other thing that probably will make it worth me actually talking about this on your show in, in greater detail on some occasion is that I've tried in this to uh, really approach the historical questions about you know how, how women influenced Jesus and what he, he learned from these women that he encountered in a way that reflects the best practice of historical scholarship as we understand it in this kind of chastened postmodern way mm -hmm. that doesn't just break everything into like tiny fragments and say, so is this an authentic saying or not? And what's its original form and those kind of things, but looks at the, the ripples and the impact, right? And so I've really tried to do that and approaching Jesus through these women and their influences on him, actually I think just helped me ask new questions about Jesus as well as see these figures and their importance in their own right. And some of those ripples I'm bringing not just canonical, but extra canonical texts into the picture because those ripples don't stop at the boundaries of the canon, right? And sometimes there are voices in the canon that are trying to push back against some of the ripples. And so we might actually detect them a bit more clearly in other places as well. And so I think that there, there's something there that uh, will interest your listeners. And the, the book is, you know, I'm getting feedback from readers, uh, mostly, mostly women because you know, on the one hand, I think it's very important that men write about these kinds of topics because one thing that became clear as I was putting together the bibliography, doing the research for this book is that there's a lot written about women by women that's read by women, which men ignore, right? right. And it's, it's, it's terrible and it's, it's shameful, but it's a reality. And so one thing that I, I thought is this shouldn't be, although a woman would probably write this book better than I would, that doesn't mean that I shouldn't write it. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm aware that I need some very, very serious feedback from uh, from women in particular, uh, female scholars, female clergy, you know, just female readers in general, uh, because I'm trying to give these women whose voices are not allowed to be heard uh, in the New Testament as fully as they deserve to be, um, allowing them to speak. And to do that, you have to go beyond the limits of what a sort of positivistic approach to history would allow you to say, which yeah. gives you just very, very tiny fragments, you know, no names a lot of the time and sparse details. And so in trying to creatively explore those stories, you know, I, I need, I need feedback on, um, you know, so, you know, you as a woman think that this is plausible from, you know, as I'm trying to get, you know, imagine what this person might have done and said and all these kinds of things. And so I'm, I'm waiting for that feedback and have it with readers and then it's gonna go to the publisher and hopefully we'll be out in the not too distant future. 
Awesome. Can't wait. And, and uh, we'd love to have you back on uh, to talk about that in depth. So uh, it is it is wrap up time. Thanks again so much, James. Uh, the, the watchers at home uh, will also put this in the notes. If I remember this time, I'll remember uh, we've been flashing at religion prof at you. That's where you can find James on the, the all social media, as well as the name of his uh, blog on Patheos. And I know our loyal listeners and YouTube watchers will be stunned to find out that there are, are, are other podcasts out there. They probably thought we're the only one. Uh, but uh, James also has a, uh, a podcast uh, about religion. It is, of course, called the Religion Prof Podcast. So uh, definitely check that out. Um, so it comes to the, the part of the show where we have to beg for money. Uh, thank you so much for watching and listening. Uh, if you don't have any money, that's fine. Please keep watching and listening. But if you have a couple bucks to spare, please head over to patreon.com slash Gnostic. And for as little as a dollar uh, per piece of media per uh, month, you can also cap it as well. So if you only want to do a dollar, you, you can set a limit. If you're able to spare that, uh, we do desperately need it uh, just to break even. Uh, and also, if we can build up the Patreon, we want to introduce more programming, more features, and we need to be able to buy shirts for our champion guests, right? The, the guests who have been on the most. Little badges <laughs> and funny hats if they want a funny hat. Yes, Only exactly. if they want one. Only if they want one, yeah. Uh, trophies, stuff like that. So uh, so please, uh, and, and if you can't help out, I completely understand because uh, I am the, the king of being broke. Uh, I, I am uh, broke-ass Obama, the, uh, the the leader of the nation of Brokanistan. Bro so if, if you do not have anything to spare, uh, we completely understand. Uh, but if you do appreciate the show, you like it, uh, share it on social media. Like and subscribe on YouTube. And if you or not comfortable sharing it on social media for whatever reason, just send it to a friend who you think would like it as much as you did. So uh, thanks again so much. James, thanks again so much. Bishop, always a pleasure. Good to see you Thank all. I'm <laughs> sorry.